You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good to see y'all this morning. Um, Welcome to Redemption Church. We're really glad you're here. We are a community that exists to provide connection to Jesus for absolutely anyone. Um, We're intent on achieving our goals of connection and redemption through grace and sharing and exploration. If you're new to Redemption, welcome. We're really glad you're here. There's a little card in front of you. You can fill that out, drop it in the back on your way out the door, or you can go to redemptionhou.com slash today and click the I'm new button and just let us know that you were here. Um, We'd love to say hi, reach out, get to know you, um, help you get to know us as a church. We've been for the last several weeks exploring um, what I've couched as the most hopeful idea in all of scripture. And if I were to say, if I were like, hand out some paper and be like, okay, it's a quiz. Here's the question. What is the most hopeful idea in all of scripture? I think I would get a smattering of answers that would kind of talk around and maybe about and sort of getting at this hopeful idea, but we haven't really exactly spelled it out plainly yet. Um, And so I want to do that this morning. And the reason we're doing this, one is it feels entirely appropriate after a long and exhausting several years for all of us, after a long and exhausting six months for us as a church, to remind us as a congregation what exactly we're doing, what exactly we are believing in, what exactly we are hoping for. The cards in front of you say, radically inclusive hope for absolutely anyone. What is that hope? What are we inviting our neighbors into? What are we showing up expectant for? So we saw um, over the last several weeks the reality that Jesus has actually and really and substantially freed us from the grip of sin and death and not just like a uh, spiritual way, but in an actual real tangible way. We also saw that the reality of this Uh, new incoming kingdom is breaking in both in us and outside of us and through us, but we very much still live in a broken and shattered world where pain and suffering seem to be the rule of the day. And last week we saw that this means that we will, as a people of faith, continue to suffer. But as we suffer, as we groan under the weight of pain and suffering, we know that God actually groans and suffers with us. And so we've seen that pain and suffering are not God's plan for you. I feel like I I have to say it again. Like pain and suffering and death 
and decay are not what God wants for you. It's not God's plan for you. It is not God's will for you. Yeah, but I deserve it. I don't care if you think you deserve it or not. That is not what God is after. That is not what Christ came for. That is not what the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you into our world. God does not want you to suffer, to be in pain. And yet pain and suffering is so much of what we all experience. So then what is our great hope? So I want to spell it out really plainly, and if you've been with us for the last six or seven weeks, hopefully this actually hits in a way that it wouldn't have hit six or seven weeks ago. But our great hope is this, that God actually and really has a wonderful plan for your life. That God actually and really has a wonderful plan for your life well, uh, okay, what are you talking about? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Coming off of the heels of all of these scriptures that are, or all these verses that have been talking about suffering, Paul makes it very clear and very plain in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose that God has a plan, and that that plan is rooted in God's love, and that that plan is for your good, and that that plan cannot be thwarted by anything. In fact, all the things God can and will use to work towards your good. Now, we need to unpack this a little bit, because this gets really complicated really fast, depending on the circles that you grew up in. What Paul is saying here, what Romans is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to understand here is that God is at work and God is actively working towards your good. Right? When I was uh, thinking about this this week, when we were just kind of thinking through the, how are we going to phrase this? How are we going to talk about this? What are, what are some of the ways that we can explore this? I just kept coming back to the the line in Narnia, right? If you don't know Chronicles of Narnia, um, spoiler alert, it's been out for like 75 years. should maybe give it a read or a watch. Um, but there's this, there's this conversation that happens very early on. These children like go into this cupboard and they end up in this magical world of Narnia and they run into a beaver, you know, like we all have at some point in our lives. And they're having this conversation and there's like kind of these mutterings of like this world that's been stuck in uh, winter for ages and ages and ages, but I hear Aslan's on the move. I hear Aslan's on the move. And the kids are like, I don't know who Aslan is. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, this is like a whole new world for me. But, but each one of them has like a different reaction to this. Suddenly one of them is like terrified, like, like they're about to be found out. One of them is stirred with some sort of like expectant, like, oh my gosh, like I might actually become the conqueror that I think I could be. The other one is like all of a sudden felt like this feeling that she has right before a really long holiday. And it's this beautiful imagery that C.S. Lewis uh, paints when he talks about this lion that comes in and makes the world right, unfreezes it, brings in like perpetual spring. And the reality is God is at work. 
God is at work. And I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't seem like it. Maybe even internally, you're like, I, God, I don't even know where you're at. But like, rest assured, God is at work and he is working towards your good. This is our hope. This is what we cling to. This is what we invite our neighbors into. This is why we show up week after week after week. God is actively working towards our good. Not just outside in the world, not just in some like distant place. God is at work among us. And God is even at work in you. Yes, even you. So, uh, backing up, I want to talk about what this verse means. This verse has been hijacked and has been used in a lot of really unhelpful ways, right? You're like sitting at a funeral of a loved one, or regardless of how they passed away, someone comes up to you and says, well, you know, God works all things together for good. Uh, or you get a really like terrible diagnosis, or you're just going through it, and someone comes up, puts their hand on your shoulder, and in a well-meaning, well-intentioned Uh, supposedly loving way, hey, it's okay. God works all things together for good. And right, whether it's meant or not, what is being communicated is, hey, God wanted this to happen to you. In fact, uh, maybe what's even implied is, well, God needed this to happen to you so that this better thing would happen over here. We talked about this several weeks ago, but maybe sometimes bad things just happen. I want to more strongly say it this way. Can we like all agree that God is never, ever, 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 ever the author of evil? Like what God brings into the world is only goodness and beauty and flourishing and life. Whatever he touches like springs forth and flourishing He is not the author of death. He is not the author of suffering. He is not the author of pain. Those things happen when a world has been severed from him. And as he tries to come back into the world and fill the world up with the fullness of his presence, we should not expect that world, that future place, that place of resurrection to be a place of death, to be a place of suffering, to be a place of pain. Because God is there. God is not the author of evil. So when we hear that God is at work and that God is at work towards our good, we can trust that even in the face of the darkest things, even death itself, and I realize that this is a very bold statement, I'm not currently confronting death itself. Now I could step out on the street an hour from now and something terrible could happen. But like in general, like I'm not laying in a hospital bed knowing that this is the final whatever of my life, right? So this is easy for me to stand up here and say. But I think that Paul really means this when he says it. The heaviest, worst, most powerful evil that you can imagine, God can and will even overcome that. This is what it means for God to work for your good. 
This is what it means for God to work all things for your good. It's not that all things are good. It's that the most senseless, the most evil, even the darkest things cannot overcome the good that God is working in and you towards. God can overcome the darkest night and God can still bring about his wonderful plan for your life. Even in the face of the most senseless evil, the most painful violence, So then what is this good? What is this good that God is working all things towards? What is God's plan for you and me? Let's keep reading. Verse 29. And this is where, like, okay, so stay with me, all right? We're about to see some stuff, and you'll be like, we're going to go over here. Like, well, wait a second. He said predestination, and all of a sudden the conversation is going to get off topic. We'll deal with it. But before we deal with it, like, let's keep the train of thought here. And let's keep the main thing the main thing, and like, let's not miss the message and the point of why we're even talking about predestination in the first place. Verse 29, because for those whom God foreknew, he also predetermined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God decided before all things that this is what was going to happen. It's already been decided. Right, and we hear that, but wait a second, hold on. I didn't get a say in it. Okay, fair question. Let's put a pin in that question for just a second and hear what Paul is saying to us. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. God has already determined that this is exactly what will happen. Whatever darkness you're facing, even death itself cannot thwart the plan of God. Because the ones that God foreknew ahead of time, he predetermined that they would be conformed to the image of his son in order that Christ, he might be the firstborn within a large family. Right, so he's drawing this parallel. So earlier, a few verses ago, he's like, hey, look, if, if we are sharing as sons of God in the inheritance of the son of God in Jesus, then we should expect that like Jesus, we too will experience suffering. Not because suffering is good, but because if Jesus wasn't spared for suffering, then why should we be expecting to be spared from suffering? But that if Jesus suffered and was raised and we are sharing in all things that belong to him, then we can expect in our suffering that we will too be raised. He was the firstborn of a whole family, and we are that family. Verse 30, we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is uh, calling back to earlier in the chapter when he says, you will be glorified with him provided that you suffer along with him. And I I want us to notice here, who's at work, right? It's God. And that there's this like link, there's this chain. It's, uh, some people call it the golden chain of salvation. I think we should come up with a better name for it because that one's terrible. Like really gold, is that the best you could do? Okay. 
And it it goes like this. Look, God knew ahead of time that this is what he was going to do and who he was going to do it for. And so he has decided ahead of time that this is how he was going to behave towards them. And he has decided that he would call them. And when he called them, he then justified them. That justified is just a fancy way of saying he made them right. He uh, set it back in order. He took what was broken and he fixed it. And the ones he justified, he also glorified. Uh, glorified is this idea of sharing in Christ's resurrection, sharing in Christ's nature. We'll talk about this in just a second. But there is no like space to get in and be like, if this happens or unless this happens. And so the idea here is that God is the one who is in control of this. And if God is the one who is in control of this, the circumstances and the evil and like whoever else is telling you whatever else about what God has decided simply does not determine your fate. God does. So we get caught up in like free will and determinism and we miss Paul's overarching point, which is, hey, God is the one who's in control here you will be glorified. In fact, one of the fun grammatical things that Paul does here is he talks about glorification, which is a future thing, which is resurrection, but he talks about it in past tense. Not present tense, not future tense. He speaks about it as if it has already been done, and the whole point is like, it is such a sure thing, it's past tense. That your fate rests in the hands of God and you can take it to the bank. You will be made new. You will be glorified. You will be redeemed. You will be resurrected and restored because it's in God's hands. And so this is assurance. It takes our our relationship with God, our standing with God, our fate, our future, our real profound spiritual and physical needs, and it like places them in the hand of God. Of God. Now, this would be terrible news if God was like this malevolent, like terrible being. Right? Uh, there's some, I don't know, you maybe had to read it at some point in your life. There's a famous sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards where he depicts all of us as like these little insects being hung over the flames of hell by the hand of God, and all God wants to do is just watch you burn, right? And it's like, uh, hmm, okay, hold on. Right, if that is the God that we are entrusting our entire lives to, uh, that, yeah, that's scary, that's frightening. And, and maybe, right, there's some things that make us perceive that that's what God's disposition is towards us. But how do we know what God is like? Well, we read our Bibles. Eh, Wrong answer. How do we know what God is like? The fullest and the clearest revelation of God is the person of Jesus. God is like Jesus. Right, a lot of times we we think of it this way. Jesus is like God. No, 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 no. God is like Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God loves like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks of you? What does Jesus think of you? 
You know what God thinks about sinners? What does Jesus think about sinners? What does Jesus think about the world? What does Jesus think about the rebellious or the ones who've screwed up or the ones who, right, whatever? And this idea that we are placing ourselves in the hands of God is this idea of grace. Right, the same way that none of us would, I think, rationally say, hey, I can ever do anything about my own death. I'm going to die one day. That's going to happen. The only thing that could ever undo the fact that I am going to die is God, right? the God of resurrection. Right, I can work out and like, delay that, hopefully. I can eat better and delay I can take medicine and delay that, but I will one day die in the only person who can do a thing about that is God. That is grace. When God steps in and does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. So what is it that God is doing for you? He, right, he's raising you from the dead, but he's also at work in you through Jesus, by his spirit, working towards your good. And that good is in verse 29 that you would be conformed to the image of his son. So what's God like? He's like Jesus. What are we going to be made like? We are going to be made like Jesus. Right, and sometimes we hear this, and we're like, oh, so we're gonna be moral, right? We won't look at bad stuff on the internet. (laughs) Or we won't... uh, yell at our kids when we get frustrated with them, right? And those things might be true. But being conformed to the image of Jesus does not just, become, does not just mean that you morally are a better person. That you're this, there's this list of bad things that you do that all of a sudden you won't do anymore. It's much deeper and much more profound than that. One, it means that we're suddenly free from the weight of the broken world, our broken minds, our broken bodies. But, but more than that even, we are liberated into the very nature of God's self. Right? Uh, one of the early church fathers says it this way, Christ became human so that humans could become, sorry, I screwed that up. Let me start over, rewind. God became human so that humans could become like God. He actually says God became human so that humans could become God. This idea of divine union, that that we will partake of the divine nature that Jesus is sharing into our nature so that he might share his nature with us. This is glorification. Well, wait a second, what is the nature of God? And some of you are like, wait, so I'm gonna be like omnipotent? No, 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 I don't think it's anything weird like that. And people take this down like weird rabbit trails of, so we can fly and we'll be able to do this and it's just weird, right? One of the most foundational things that we can say about God is one, that God is good. And so that as we partake of the divine nature, we too will be good, like in the fullness of what that means. And then more to the heart of things, God is love. That for us to partake of the divine nature, for us to become like Jesus, means that we share in love. That we become lovers. We become receptive to love. We become givers of love. We become lost and awash in the God of love. 
And so becoming like Jesus does not just mean that we do the right things. It means that we share in the nature of love itself. And so, yeah, of course you'll do the right things because you're a loving person who, in everything, loves. You'll be like Jesus. Okay, so so let's look at the next part because we're uh, sort of working backwards here. Verse 31, so what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, right, and obviously God is for us, then who is against us? And this is in response to like, hey, we live in a broken world. We're all going to suffer. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? We're like back here talking about, well, I don't know, predestination. I, you know, did I choose the color of my shirt today or did God choose that for me? And like there's this rich text where the God of love is inviting you into the heart of love and saying, I want to give you everything. Everything that you ache for, everything that you long for, all that you were made to be, I want to give it to you. I'm inviting you into it. Verse 33. So who will bring a charge against God's chosen, God's elect? It's God who justifies. Right? It's God who makes right. Who's going to accuse you of anything? So there's a, um, there's like this thing going around the internet right now. There's this revival happening in Asbury Seminary, and I don't really know what to make of it. It's a bunch of Gen Z folks uh, singing worship songs for like a week straight with no breaks. It's, I, I don't know exactly what's happening there, but I just see a revival. I'm like, okay, cool. That's great. I, I like if our affection is being drawn towards Jesus, like I'm all about it. Let's go. But people are like randomly messaging me. Hey, what do you think about this? Like, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm reading people's social media posts about what's supposedly happening or not happening. Um, someone shared something with me this morning that I read and I'm like, wait, uh, what? And they were like, well, here's all the reasons that this revival is not from God. Look who's there. And there's a list of all the stereotypical evangelical sinful types, right? And then look at what they believe. And they're like, here's all the theological doctrinal errors that they have. And then here's here's all the reasons that this is actually an unloving thing for them to do when they're couching it as a loving thing for them to do. And I'm like, "Uh, wait a second. Hold on. So you have, you have a bunch of people that are, quote unquote, too sinful to be with God, who, quote unquote, don't believe well enough to be with God, who are now all of a sudden stirred up in affection for God. And your accusation is, well, then clearly this can't be of, from God. Like, do, have, do you know Jesus? Have you read the Gospels? Like, this is... A bunch of randos who aren't interested in God encounter Jesus and all of a sudden they're like the most God-loving people. Like this is what Jesus does. And right, my point isn't to say anything about what's going on in Asbury or not going on in Asbury. My point is this, who can bring a charge against the ones that God has chosen to justify? 
And there's many of you sitting in this room that have been told by churches and church leaders and pastors, you can't really love Jesus and Jesus can't really love you because dot, dot, dot. You believe this. You think this. You don't believe this. You're this. Your, your fate is not in their hands. Your fate is not in my hands. Your fate is in the hands of God. God has already predetermined what would happen to you and for you, and it is good. This is the invitation. Verse 34, so who can condemn us? It's Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God and is now interceding on our behalf. Here's what God thinks about you. Listen to Jesus. You want to know what God thinks about you? Ask Jesus. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. So who can bring a charge? Verse 35. So then who can separate us from the love of Christ? And this is it, right? This is the most hopeful idea. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or divorce or lupus, car problems, or a bad day, or a bad decision, or impatience. Who can separate you from the love of God? For your sake, we are all being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, even in our suffering, We are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him, through Jesus who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor uh, demons, is probably what's really going on there, nor things that are happening now, nor things that will happen next, nor any sort of power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of the cosmos will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the good news. This is our hope. That you are loved by a God who is actively working towards your good because God loves you. God's plan for you is not like, ah, you know, I got to do this because I'm supposed to and I'm God and whatever. God's plan for you is not some sort of philosophical like, ah, I've got myself in a corner and now I can't do anything about it. No, God's plan for you is rooted in God's love for you. Like you. It's easy for us to think like, ah, yeah, God loves the world. But do you understand that God loves you? He loves you. 
God loves you. And nothing can change that. And nobody can take that away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. There's no failure. There's no abusive religious leader. There's no homophobia or transphobia. There's no racism or bigotry. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are his. Uh, I won't go into this, right? The other argument that to be made here is, well, okay, so I get it. God loves me. God's working towards my good. But like, how do I know that he, he can actually do it? Right, the, the whole point is like God's love cannot be thwarted. God's plan will actually happen. And we know this because when Christ died, Christ was also resurrected. That even death itself could not overcome God. And then lastly, God will not change God's mind about you. And the argument that Paul makes here is because God was willing to give his son, then we know that there's nothing, there's no length at which God will not go to say, like, you're mine. So how do we respond to this? Hopefully, um, with a little bit of like, wow, <laughs> And maybe even like with a little bit of like, <sighs> but ultimately we surrender because that's all we can do. We surrender ourselves to the love of God and trusting ourselves to the love of God, staking our lives on the love of God. And this is exactly what Jesus demonstrates for us. This is how Jesus as a perfect human shows us we ourselves ought to also live in a broken, sinful world. We surrender. So I had, um, right, a long time ago, very long time ago now, when I first started teaching in a high school, I was a teacher at a high school of a Christian school. I taught Bible, which is weird for some people. If you grew up in Christian schools, you're like, oh yeah, no, totally understand. Um, I taught juniors, which is fantastic. So like these are 16, 17-year-olds. They'd had car keys for a little while, but they're also still like young enough uh, to be quote-unquote kids, but old enough to be, like, becoming adults. And so it was a really fun age to teach because, right, you're in this, like, conservative evangelical school, and they're like, wait a second, <laughs> hold on. I've always been told that, and then, you know, they're now kicking against that and questioning it in some, like, really good ways. So it was always a lot of fun. But I remember we were teaching this passage. It was the spring. We were getting towards the end of the semester. We were going through this section and right, they're 16 and 17. They've all got their heads on their desk. They're like half asleep. I'm like, no one can separate you from love of God. We talked about it for a second. All of a sudden, one of the girls' heads pops up. And she looks at me. Because I've never heard that before. Right? Been in this school her entire life, right? 12 of the 17 years that she's been alive. And I don't know if anyone had ever told her this or not. Like, this isn't a judgment on the school. I've never heard that before. She looks back down at the, the Bible that's in front of her. She looks up at me and she just goes, that's really good news. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, the, it's like the best news. <laughs> like, it is the good news. Um, 
yes, absolutely, this is really good news. And like, I don't know, I don't keep up with her. Um, I don't know what happened to her. I don't know what her life in Christ or in God looked like from that day forward. But, but part of me is like prayerfully longing for all of us, even me myself, to have that aha moment where the Spirit of God opens our eyes and lets us see the beauty of the love of God. And we go, oh, wait, this is really good news. Because when we look at like life, we look at our own personal struggles with our own faith and how we are like pursuing Jesus and how we're like trying to figure out like what does it even mean to live into this love of God? One of the questions that I think we all should be asking, including myself, is wait, why don't I actually live into this reality more? Why don't I like surrender to this more? It it seems liberating, it seems freeing, and so much of me wants to be like, ah, but I don't know if I trust it fully. And so one of the questions I I have for you today, and this is a question that I'm gonna encourage y'all to kick around in your hub groups this week. If you're not in a hub group, you can find one easily. This would be a great week to show up and be like, hey, I wanna check out your hub group, or two, or three. But the question is, like, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from embracing the God that embraces you? What in you is, like, like just reserved enough to not fully entrust yourself to a loving God? In, like, real practical ways, right? I don't just mean, like, well, yeah, I believe in my head that God loves me. But like the, the, the kind of ways that make us realize like, no, 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 it's, it's like 30 minutes spent with you is better than 30 minutes spent sermon prepping or whatever that I do in my life that's not spending time with God. Right, the, the, the to-do list that rattles through our head. But like, can we like get underneath all of the junk for just a second? Can we just suggest that maybe for a, many of us, and I might be projecting here. (laughs) Maybe we question that God actually really loves us, not because we question God, but because we think that somehow we're unlovable. Maybe we've convinced ourselves or someone else has convinced us, God, God can't love you. Or maybe God did love you, but goodness gracious, he gave that up a long time ago. Maybe you've done something that convinces you that you could never be loved by God. Maybe someone else has done something to you that just consistently puts a wall up between you being able to let go and actually believe that you are loved by God. Maybe you just feel unlucky, like bad things always happen to you, so therefore how could God love you? God must be unhappy with me. What are you believing actually separates you from the love of God? I don't know. I don't know. It's a question worth exploring. I think it's a question worth spending our lives exploring. I think it's a question that God is wanting us to go after and wanting to like tear down and be like, no, 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 really, I love you. I know you did this thing. I saw you do this thing. I was there when you did this thing, and I love you. But then part two is, 
What are you hoping in that's not this? What are you spending your life on that's not this? Right, and that's not like, hey, you should all be pastors and missionaries because I got it all figured out. <laughs> but like, what is it that you are actually believing is going to satisfy your soul? Is it when you can finally go to lunch? <laughs> is it the next whatever endorphin hit that you're going to get from X, Y, or Z? Is it reaching this academically? Is it this pay grade? Is it this position of power? What do you think is going to make you happy? What do you think is going to fulfill you? What do you think is going to satisfy your soul that's not this? Right, and that's not to say that any of those things that might be going through your head are bad things. Most of those things are probably actually good things. It's that if those good things aren't leading us to this, then we're missing the point. That our hope and our life ought to be staked on this reality. And what this does is it frees us up to be like, like if nothing can come against me, I can live in whatever sort of poverty, I can face whatever sort of uh, diagnosis, I can encounter whatever sort of whatever, because I know that my fate is secured in the hands and love of God. How does the hope of God's working towards our good, towards our resurrection, shape the perspective that you have on your life? Right, this is the question that I'm asking our hub groups to kick around this week. With the time that you have left in your life, <laughs> for some of you, you're like, oh, that's a long time. For me, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Let's start to have some questions. <laughs> I think the aging of my car triggered me this week. Like, wait a second. I was in my 20s. 20... Oh, no, right? My car's a 2006, in case you didn't know. About to be a 2000 dead, so. <laughs> so um, I'll wrap it up with this. So Lent kicks off this week, and I don't necessarily care that you care about Lent. Maybe you care about Lent. Maybe Lent's exciting for you or like helpful for you or some sort, some sort of way like formative for you. Um, my point in bringing up Lent is not, hey, you should care about Lent too. My point in bringing up Lent is that Lent is a season where we can explore these questions. It feels like a good excuse of like, Hey, let's stop, take a beat, and recognize that all of us have some like things in our life, some unhealthy affections in our life that we could maybe reconsider, or all of us have at least some things that we wish we could take up that we know are life-giving for us. Like what if we could like intentionally create like just some, some time and some space to either withdraw or enter into or maybe even both? Not because the withdrawing or the entering into is like the thing. No, no, no. But what can help me understand and experience this love that Romans 8 is talking about? I was talking to someone, uh, I don't remember who it was. I was talking to someone this week and we were talking about this idea of like spiritual life and prayer and I think sometimes we just assume, oh, I had a good prayer time or a bad prayer time or a good quiet time or a bad quiet time or I had one versus I didn't have one. And the reality is not that our, like God's love for us depends on whether we did that or didn't do that. 
and that God's working towards our good depends on whether we did that or didn't do that. The reality is, were you aware of it? It was there the whole time. God was at work the whole time. God was loving you the whole time. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Did you get to slow down and experience it? And so this space to let go or take up, this space where we can imitate Jesus and live into the reality of God's love by pursuing intimacy and union with God in various forms of prayer can be good for us. So as we explore this um, this week, um, our next series that we'll go through up until Easter is going to be a series on some of these different ways of entering into this union. What are, what are some of the ways that we can withdraw? What are some of the things that we can enter into and take up? But this week, what I want you to do is I want to encourage you to explore the hope that's on offer. Because if we take up practices without the hope, without really understanding that we are entering into the love of God, then the practices are empty and meaningless like religiosity, right? So this week, my encouragement to you is to take some time for introspection and reflection and ask yourself, do I really believe that God loves me? Like, do I really believe that God is working towards my good? And whatever your answer, right, yes or no, why do I believe that? Why do I think that? What's like there? And then what might it look like for me to let go and give my life to this love? And all of this hopefully is done with open hands in prayer. God, inspect my heart. Reveal to me what I need to see in me. Help me to let go. Help me to enter into your love that is there and at work for my good. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.